Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House has passed legislation that would avert a potential national freight rail strike that could start next week. Lawmakers voted to impose the terms of a contract on the rail unions. Peter Kennedy is with one of the unions, the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees Division. He says the vote essentially takes away the right of the unions to strike. This should be about putting hardworking Americans first. This should be about putting our economy first. And you do that providing, by providing basic protections for workers. At issue is sick leave for workers. The House also passed a separate measure that would guarantee the rail workers seven sick days per year. The issue now goes to the Senate, where the outcome is not clear. French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife Brigitte are in Washington, D.C. on a state visit. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has more. The official state visit will begin Thursday morning with a ceremony on the White House South Lawn. A state dinner will be held in the evening. Only one year ago, French-U.S. relations were at a low point after Australia scuttled a multi-billion dollar submarine deal with France to buy U.S. subs. Nicole Bacheron is a specialist on transatlantic relations. I'm quite sure the state dinner, which is the biggest honor the United States Republic can offer to a foreign leader, it has a little bit to do with the much ruffled feathers. But Bacheron says the submarine affair is in the past and Macron and Biden have excellent relations. The war in Ukraine, the energy crisis and China will dominate talks between the two presidents. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is facing a civil lawsuit in federal court. This is over his decision to remove a liberal prosecutor in Tampa from his office. Suspended state attorney Andrew Warren is seeking to get his job back. From Tallahassee, Steve Bosquet has more. DeSantis says he removed Warren from his post because the prosecutor agreed in writing to oppose abortion bans and to support gender-affirming treatments for children. But Warren is fighting back, and a federal judge will soon decide who's right. In court Wednesday, DeSantis's public safety czar, former federal prosecutor Larry Keefe, said every sheriff he spoke to criticized Warren's prosecution tactics. But Keefe also admitted to discussing Warren with only one Democrat, the sheriff in Orlando. That prompted Judge Robert Hinkle to bluntly ask, quote, You can't give me the name of a single Democrat you talk to besides the sheriff of Orange County? For NPR News, I'm Steve Bosquet in Tallahassee. Stock futures are trending lower in pre-market trading, but they soared by more than 2% yesterday. That came after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell suggested that the central bank could choose smaller interest rate hikes this month. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Prince William and Kate, Princess of Wales, will be touring the Boston area today. Yesterday afternoon, they were welcomed at City Hall. The two will visit Roca and Chelsea today. Roca is a nonprofit that works with at-risk young men and women to reduce violence. It also uses brain science research to understand the impact of trauma on mental health. Molly Baldwin is Roca's CEO. What an extraordinary honor. We look forward to the discussion with them. I think we're just really excited about that and so thrilled that they get to meet young people and this remarkable staff team we have. There will also be a visit to Greentown Labs in Somerville. That's the largest climate tech incubator in North America. CEO Emily Reichert says the Royals will meet five climate entrepreneurs working on projects ranging from decarbonized consumer goods to solar-powered ocean transport. They will have the opportunity to learn 
about their work and learn in the broader picture how the climate change issue can be addressed through entrepreneurship. The royal couple is in Boston to award the Earthshot Prize, which celebrates solutions to the climate crisis. Some Cape Cod residents are balking at proposed new state rules that could force them to replace or upgrade their septic systems in the next five years. Those proposed rules are designed to combat nitrogen pollution from septic systems. As WBUR's Barbara Moran explains, the pollution has degraded water quality on the Cape for decades. Experts say that installing a next-gen septic system that filters nitrogen can cost up to $35,000. But at a public meeting last night, some Cape residents said that that price tag was way too low. $30,000 or $35,000 a year, that's a complete misrepresentation. You can buy a system for that, you got to maintain it, you got to fix pots, it just never ends. Chris Shanahan lives in East Falmouth. He says he installed one of the systems 11 years ago. So lifetime expense is more like 80 or 100,000 over 30 years. You know, I'm just saying, let's not do something that's not going to work and cost people 80,000. The state expects to roll out the new regulations early next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Recreational marijuana use is now legal in Rhode Island. The state's law legalizes the sale and possession of up to an ounce of cannabis for adults ages 21 and older. People can also grow a small amount at home. Rhode Island is the 19th state to legalize recreational pot use. It was legalized here in Massachusetts back in 2018. There will be a free figure skating show tonight at the Frog Pond on Boston Common. It's being hosted by the Skating Club of Boston. Club president and CEO Doug Zepai says the show starts at 5, an hour before a ceremony to light the Christmas tree on the Common. Our ice show, which will star the world silver medalist Ashley Wagner, that will take place before the start of the tree lighting ceremony. So folks can come and watch that show, walk over to the tree lighting ceremony, and then come on back to the Frog Pond, and they can skate, and they can really have a whole fun evening of it. Skating on the Frog Pond runs until 9 tonight. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Celtics beat the Miami Heat 134-121 to last night at the Garden. The two teams play again here in Boston tomorrow. And it's a big divisional matchup for the Patriots tonight as they host the Buffalo Bills. Meanwhile, this morning at the Men's World Cup, Canada plays Morocco. Croatia faces Belgium. Then this afternoon, it's Japan against Spain. And Costa Rica takes on Germany. A high wind advisory remains in effect throughout the day today. The winds will be strong and it'll be partly sunny with a high today around 40. Clear overnight with temperatures near 30. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid 40s. We should get some rain on Saturday. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 7.08. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms, more at VIX.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 
Daryl C. Murphy there, host of our new podcast, The Common, just one of many, many podcasts, newsletters, radio shows, lots of other stuff that you get here on WBOR just by turning on the radio or going to the WBUR app or going to WBUR.org. It's that easy. It's free. We work on voluntary contributions. That's why we're coming to you at the end of the year. If this is the time of year that you give, think about giving to WBUR. Thank you so much if you have helped out in the last half hour. If not, now is your time. We're trying to raise that race raise, sorry, $7,000 by 8 o'clock. We know we can do it. We know how many of you are listening right now and care about what you're hearing. This is the last fundraiser of the year, so please give at WBWAR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Deb Becker. Good morning. Yes. Uh, good morning, Rupa. Good morning, everyone. This is it. This is the last fundraiser of the year here at WBUR. We've got a goal, Rupa, right this hour? We're trying to raise $7,000 mm-hmm. by 8 o'clock, and so we need your help, quite frankly. We've got 50 minutes to do that and raising that $7,000 will help keep us on track during this fundraiser. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call, or you can pledge online at WBUR.org. But we also have a terrific thank you gift that we want to tell you about right now. For your donation of $12 a month for the news, we will send you, as our thanks, a WBUR sweatshirt. It's a lovely sweatshirt that we are all allowed to wear here in the studio this morning. <laughs> nice and soft, great for this time of year. We will send you that for your pledge of $12 a month for the news. And we should say... After 7 o'clock today, that uh, gift for your donation goes up to $20 a month for you to be able to get the sweatshirt. So take advantage of that now. Make your pledge. Do what you can. And and really help support the news. You know, we, we spoke with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering about this earlier. And let's hear what she had to say. Local news is being gutted. Local newspapers, local news sources. And it is in local news, good, attentive, quality journalism, that we both hold local officials accountable, understand the local trends that affect all of us, recognize local solutions. It's how we vote. It's how we go to school. It's how we work. So for WBUR to have the capacity and ability to double down in the local space, to be truly available as a local journalism resource The stakes are just so high for being able to do that now. I'm so lucky I get to hang out with Tiziana every morning outside of fundraising. And it's really, you know, I talked to her before and after she's on the radio with me, and she really brings this incredible enthusiasm and just... She's so devoted to this cause, to the quality of our journalism. And what she says is true. I mean, I worked for newspapers. I think, did you work for newspapers? I did. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason I moved on. (laughs) You know, this is somewhere where we can have an impact, where we can really deliver to people what they need to know every morning. We know you depend on that. We know you value it. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Again, we're 
were trying to raise $7,000 by 8 o'clock. That's right. And, you know, I, I also liked what, what Tiziana said about local, our commitment to local, mm-hmm. to this community. Um, and uh, just think of what we heard in the past few minutes. What did we hear in the newscast? You know, what's what's hap- what's the weather forecast? What's <laughs> the weather going to be like today? Uh, what's going on with President Biden's meeting with the president of France? Why is he doing that? What, what's expected? Mm-hmm. What's happening with the royals? Recreational marijuana in Rhode Island. Frog pond skating. I mean, it's all here for you. So, so take a moment right now and make that donation and pledge for this comprehensive news and information that you're not going to get anywhere else. And remember, we'll send you a thank you gift. Twelve dollars a month for the news gets you a terrific WBUR sweatshirt. Pledge now. And we are at sixty-five hundred dollars right now to go until eight o'clock. So we are working down that goal. We just need your help to do it. Give at WBUR.org or call one eight hundred nine zero nine nine. Two eight seven and thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. The United States and its allies hope they can finally find a formula to choke off Russia's funding of its war in Ukraine. Russia's economy depends on selling oil. Next week, Europe plans to stop buying it for the most part. Europe also has a plan that would make it harder for Russians to sell it to anybody else. Therein lies the rub because Russian oil is part of the global supply, so how can the world block it without a massive rise in prices? NPR's Jackie Northam is trying to figure this out. Jackie, good morning. Morning, Steve. How would the plan work? Well, you know, this is part of a sanctions package that the European Union passed in uh, June. And what it's going to do, as you say, is going to uh, ban any seaborne imports of Russian oil. And that's the majority that Europe buys. And if you remember, before the war, Europe was Russia's largest customer. But it's been trying to wean itself off ever since. But, you know, there's another part of the sanctions package, Steve, and that's banning all European maritime services on any tankers carrying Russian oil. And by that, I mean insurance, financial services, shipping, anything like that. 90% of the world's maritime services are European or are based in the UK. So this ban would virtually stop tankers worldwide from carrying Russian crude. And you can only imagine what these two bans, you know, if they came into place, what that would have done to prices. So the U.S. has stepped in to just try to soften the blow of these bans. Soften the blow, but the U.S. also would like to cut off Russian oil profits, of course. So what's Mm -hmm. the alternative? Right. So the U.S. Treasury Department developed the idea of a price cap, and it's never been tried on oil before. Um, And the other G7 nations in the EU have signed on to this plan. And what it does is it allows tankers to carry Russian crude if it's at or less than a price cap that's being set by the G7 and EU. And that will allow Russian oil to continue to flow around the world, but at a reduced price. The challenge right now is figuring out what that price will be. And EU members cannot agree on one. And, you know, all this has to be figured out by Monday when the EU's bans on oil insurance are due to kick in. Okay, let's assume they figure out the details. They figure out a price. They use this leverage of insurance to say you can't carry oil, Russia, unless you charge such a low, low price. You don't have any money for your war in Ukraine. Is this going to work? 
You know, on paper, it looks pretty good, but there are some loopholes. First of all, not all nations are signing on to it. You get powerhouses like China, India, and Turkey. They've been on a buying spree of, you know, very cheap Russian crude since the war began. And I spoke with Ben Cahill. He's an energy specialist at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in D.C. And he said countries like China and India are wary of joining in. I think there's also some irritation with Western sanctions. And the idea that, you know, the U.S. and the EU are really pushing countries to do this and they're interfering with the global oil market. Okay, so they're irritated, Jackie, but you said that Europe controls the insurance industry for the most part. They can block these tankers from moving by refusing them insurance. How could China or India do business with Russia even if they want to? Well, Russia's trying to set up its own insurance system and there's, you know, trying to put its own tankers out on the waters. They could try to trade oil illicitly and that happens a lot already. The other thing is President uh, Vladimir Putin is threatening not to do oil business with any country participating in this price cap. But, you know, Steve, he needs this oil to fund his war in Ukraine. Um, But, you know, you cannot take his threats lightly. Because he could do something that causes the price of oil around the world to shoot up. Jackie, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. That's NPR's Jackie Northam. Europe is also looking for new ways to hold Russia accountable for war crimes in Ukraine. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says it's time for a new tribunal. Russia must pay for its horrific crimes, including for its crime of aggression against a sovereign state. And this is why, while continuing to support the International Criminal Court, We are proposing to set up a specialized court backed by the United Nations to investigate and prosecute Russia's crime of aggression. Let's go now to Luis Moreno Ocampo. Between 2003 and 2012, he served as the first chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. So let's start off, uh, Luis, with this new court, the one proposed by the EU. Is that the best way to hold Russian leaders accountable? No, no way. What I am missing is what I learned in my... I had experience to investigate head of states in Darfur, President Bashir and Gaddafi. And the problem I learned, in fact, I'm the only one who had this experience. Uh, The problem I see is the political leaders should harmonize the solutions. And they are not, they are talking about sanctions, but they are talking how to end the war. And the paradox is that President Putin should be accountable for criminal behavior, but at the same time, it's a person to negotiate the deal, to end the war and end the nuclear risk. We are in a conflict with a nuclear power. So it's not just about sanctions, it's about how to end the conflict. And so how to do investigations against President Putin and the same negotiate, that is what we discuss, we can discuss. And to do that, you don't need a new court. You just can implement the, you have the beauty of having an independent international criminal court up and running. Use it. But, and, but what can the International Criminal Court do if Russia does not accept their jurisdiction? Well, for aggression crime, which is the most obvious crime committed by President Putin, because it's the use of armed force against the territorial integrity of another state, and that's obvious what happened. The problem is, yes, uh, Russia is not the party, and the law in the current situation ex- ex- requires that both states, the aggressor and the country, like Ukraine in this case, should be part of the SEC. But for other crimes, that request is not needed. The International Criminal Court 
can investigate crimes against humanity committed by President Putin himself. Let's and that's the way to make President Putin accountable. And interestingly, there are two important factors here. The, the President Putin has immunity before national court, but has no immunity before the International Criminal Court, except the, the Article 28 of the Statute says yeah. specifically, head of state should not have, in, in no case, be exempt of criminal responsibility. So you, you mentioned, you mentioned Luis. Yeah, you mentioned Luis really quick. That you mentioned that we're dealing with a nuclear power here. Is that something yeah. that are we are we in uncharted waters, so to speak, in that we've never dealt with anything like this before with this kind of scale? Well, you you had the Cuban Missile Crisis in the sixties, and that's a closer for this, I believe, and that's why President Kennedy's goal was yes to deter, but at the same time to negotiate, and that we are missing here. Uh, Economic sanctions did not work in Darfur. U.S. did a big effort to ban oil from Darfur, but everyone bought the oil. China, in particular, bought the oil in Darfur. So it would not work. And the ICC could work. The interesting thing is we don't need a new court. We just need an indictment against President Putin now. Well, when it That's comes to important. yeah, well, when it comes to for uh, some form of re re retribution or not rest restitution for Ukraine, I know that EU member states have uh, frozen 300 billion in Russian central bank reserves. If that ever gets unfrozen and sanctions get lifted, could some of that money be tied to some kind of peace agreement? So that way, Ukraine gets uh, some measure of being whole again. Oh, but that's exactly what the political should, should discuss. How to okay. We need the international record indictment. We, we have this money frozen. How we can combine this to put pressure on President Putin to make a deal, to make a negotiation, to stop the crime? And that's a paradox, because we, the, the world is not well organized. The criminal is at the same time the person who can make peace. And that, that's a paradox. But the interesting point um, is that in the International Criminal Court, they can indict him, but then the UN Security Council could decide to suspend the investigation. So that's what President Obama did in Darfur. He used the arrest warrant against Bashir as leverage to force Bashir to accept the South independence. So that's what we need now, harmonize a criminal investigation, indict President Putin, and then negotiate with him okay. Luis, to uh, end Moreno, the conflict. Ocampo, former chief uh, prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. Luis, thanks. Thank you. In this country, the House of Representatives has acted to prevent a railroad strike. The House passed two bills. One would force railroad unions to accept a tentative labor deal negotiated by the Biden administration. The second would give rail workers seven days of paid sick leave. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports. The Senate today is negotiating an effort to avert a railroad strike, but the Biden administration is urging lawmakers to not delay the passage of the bill that forces the agreement even if that means leaving workers without sick leave. The sick leave measure was added by House Democrats following concerns from both lawmakers and worker advocates. Advocates have been asking for a paid sick leave policy that can allow workers to take time off to be put in the contract. The contract negotiated by the Biden administration did not include this. So some unions rejected the agreement, creating the threat that all railroads will strike as soon as December 9th. But the president wants to see a bill by the weekend, according to Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Here she is discussing the president's position on what the House passed. 
The president, of course, he supports paid sick leaves for all Americans, including rail workers, but he does not support any bill or amendment that will delay getting this bill to his desk by this Saturday. And he's been very clear about that. Jean-Pierre later added that they do not believe the Senate has the 60 votes needed to pass the paid sick leave portion of the effort. Since the two bills are voted on separately, lawmakers could pass one and fail to pass the other. But some Republicans and progressives are united in opposing any effort that leaves out sick pay. One lawmaker is Senator Bernie Sanders, who's trying to get a coalition of bipartisan senators to back the paid sick leave effort. Here he is speaking on the Senate floor. Do we stand with workers in the rail industry and say, yes, you are right. Working conditions are horrendous. We cannot continue a process by which you have zero paid sick leave. Senators are expected to get a visit from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and Labor Secretary Marty Walsh today as they work to put the measure up for a vote. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. I'm Lakshmi Singh from NPR. It has been a long year full of major news stories. The Supreme Court has eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion. The January 6th committee has begun to lay out what it has learned about this morning as Ukrainians face down the reality of a Russian invasion. Britain's longest-serving monarch has died at the age of 96. But there were also stories of resilience, discovery, and hope. The CDC has now signed off on COVID-19 vaccinations for infants, toddlers. The James Webb Telescope caught those images of ancient history, billions of Only one major theater out of nearly 500 across the country has gone out of business. Humanity has changed the orbit of a planetary body. The NPR network is here for you, and it takes all of us to make this coverage possible. Donate to the station today, and thank you. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Deborah Becker, and I... I think we are so happy to get every gift that you give, but we are especially thrilled to tell you that we just got a $5,000 gift. That means that we now have $1,500, only $1,500 to raise this hour, and we think we can do it in the next five minutes or so. So join in with the devoted Morning Edition listeners who are stepping up to give WBUR the support it needs in this last fundraiser of the year. And to those of you, especially the $5,000 level one who just gave Thank you so much for your effort, for your support, for valuing WBUR. We really, really are very grateful. So please join in. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You know, it was terrific to hear that that montage of some of the news stories mm-hmm. of the past year, reminding us of how many important things uh, have taken place in the past year. And, and you know, this is mm-hmm. the time of year, right, where we all reflect on, on what's happened in 2020. 
2022, what we want for 2023. Mm -hmm. And as you're doing that, we're asking you to think about WBUR and help us out during this year-end fund drive with your pledge for the news. Help support independent journalism that brings you all of the stories that you just heard and more, uh, because that's what we do every day. And we know that you value this source of news and information. So so make your pledge now. It takes just about a minute. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And we just received a $5,000 gift. Yay! Yay! You know? But whether you can pledge $5,000 or $5, whatever you can do, do it right now during this year-end fund drive because this is how this works. And here's the thing. We provide news to everybody, mm-hmm. including some celebrities. <laughs> Let's listen. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention. And I care deeply about it. And I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. Laura Duren there reminding us that we are doing this for each other. This is something that we are doing together. It's a community project. This is about stepping up and being part of your community when you support WBUR. And you can show your support when you give with a really, really cold sweatshirt that is... Heather Gray. I, I, yeah, this is I that Heather, say. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say right. Super soft. It says WBUR. And I, you know, I really love it. When I see people with uh, WBUR clothes or tote bags and I'm walking down the street and I see it, I, it just makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like, you know, maybe I'm seeing a distant relative right there on the, <laughs> on the street. It feels like I'm connected to those people when I see it. So please join us this morning. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Let's face it, uh, this type of news, this type of journalism is expensive. And this is how it's paid for, mostly by you, our listeners, during fun drives just like like this one. So take a moment right now. Help us have the resources we need to be the strong source of independent journalism. You want that editorial independence. You'll get it from us and we can maintain it and stay strong with your pledge. Here's the number again, 800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Climate change and the war in Ukraine are two of the major issues President Biden and Emmanuel Macron are expected to discuss during the French president's three-day state visit. A formal arrival ceremony is scheduled this morning at the White House, followed by a meeting between Biden and Macron. There's a state dinner tonight. Here's First Lady Jill Biden. Our hope is that the end result will be a night that balances the beauty of our friendship with the seriousness of purpose. Ahead of today's events, Macron was critical of certain aspects of Biden's signature climate law, saying they will hurt European companies by favoring American-made climate technologies, including those pertaining to electric vehicles. The chairman of the Federal Reserve says the Fed plans to continue raising interest rates to combat high inflation in the U.S. economy. But Jerome Powell suggests the Fed will pare back the size of its rate hikes this month and in future months. Cutting rates is not something we want to do soon. So that's why we're slowing down and, you know, going to try to find our way to what that right level is. Powell was speaking to the Brookings Institution in Washington. The Fed has raised rates by three quarters of a point at each of its last four policy meetings. Inflation remains far above the Fed's annual target. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new study out of Harvard Medical School shows a dramatic shift in who died during the second year of the pandemic compared to the first. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, the study finds there were fewer deaths in the second year, but there were more years of life lost. Years of life lost is a measure of how much you miss out on if you die young when compared to the average life expectancy. Many people who died in the second year of the pandemic were younger than those who died in the first year, so they had a lot more years of life lost. Mark Seisler is the lead author of the study. The median age at which people were dying decreased by nearly a decade, down from 78 years in 2020 to 69 years in 2021. Sizer's guess is that the first year hit older and frailer adults particularly hard. And during the second year, there was strong vaccine uptake among the elderly and continued precautions, which helped shield them. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Boston is getting federal money for cleanup costs from a major blizzard last January. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is reimbursing the state over $3 million for the emergency maintenance. Just over two feet of snow got dumped on the city. It was Boston's seventh largest snowstorm ever. A large piece of art honoring Dr. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King is taking shape on the Boston Common. The first piece of the Embrace statue was installed yesterday. It was brought here from Washington State. The Embrace pays tribute to the Kings who met while they both lived here in Boston. It's scheduled to be open to the public next month. The Boston Pops kicks off its 2022 holiday pop season today. The orchestra will perform 34 shows between now and Christmas Eve, including six kids' matinees and a sensory-friendly concert. Conductor Keith Lockhart says his favorite part of the concert is the sing-along. It's a season that we celebrate so traditionally through music and uh, seeing people join us in song, lift their voices together. That's something that I've missed because last year we didn't feel comfortable bringing that back into the repertoire. Lockhart calls the holiday pops an important holiday tradition for so many families, one he's glad to see back in full after changes caused by the pandemic. It's 735.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. The Celtics topped the Miami Heat 134-121 to last night at the Garden. The Prince and Princess of Wales were sitting courtside along with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and Governor-elect Moore Healy. Boston and Miami play again tomorrow night. Tonight in Foxborough, the Patriots will face the Buffalo Bills. A mix of sun and clouds today and the high winds continue. Temperatures will be right around 40. Tonight it falls to the low 30s. Then we end the week tomorrow with a sunny day in the low to mid 40s. Right now it's 36 degrees in Boston at 736. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers have told him to keep quiet, but the founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX is not. Even though regulators and law enforcement are investigating him, Bankman-Fried sat down for an interview during a business conference in New York on Wednesday. Those listening include NPR's David Gura, who joins us now. David, good morning. Morning, Steve. Wow. So you would think that your lawyer would tell you to keep quiet. How did he end up talking last night? And so this happened at the New York Times Deal Book Summit, a conference that takes place in this theater on Columbus Circle with a beautiful sweeping view of Central Park and the New York City skyline. Executives pay thousands of dollars to be there to see people like Mark Zuckerberg of Meta and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Benjamin Fried was booked to participate in this conference months before the bankruptcy. He used to do events like this all the time. And going in, everyone was wondering, one, is Sam Bankman fried going to appear? And two, why would he? Why would someone who is under investigation in the U.S. and elsewhere do this? And Andrew Ross Sorkin, the journalist who did the interview, asked Bankman Freed point blank, what are your lawyers telling you right now? Uh, are they suggesting this is a good idea for you to be speaking? Uh, no, they are very much not. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, you know, the classic advice, right, is don't say anything, recede into a hole. Uh, and it's not who I am. Bankman-Fried claimed he has, quote, a duty to explain what happened, Steve, and to do everything he can to try and do what's right. Okay, so granting that he is out there talking, what did he have to say to explain himself? Well, he said there was, quote, a massive failure of oversight and risk management at FTX. Over and over again, Bankman-Fried admitted to having made mistakes, but this is what he said when he was asked if this was a Ponzi scheme or a manipulation of the system. I didn't ever try to commit fraud on anyone. I... I was excited about the prospects of FTX a month ago. Um, I saw it as a thriving, growing business. I was shocked by what happened this month. And that sums up the image Bankman Freed projected during this really extraordinary interview that lasted longer than an hour, that he's someone who was overextended, Steve, and maybe oblivious, just seemingly unaware that there were these massive issues with FTX. Okay, so you make this general allegation, I didn't realize how bad things were, but then people are going to want to know the details to see if the details check out. Did he give any new details about what he knew and when he knew it? Yeah, Beckman fried said he was nervous about FTX's financials earlier than he first let on, all the way back on November the 2nd, which 
is surprising because a few days after that, he was still tweeting statements about the company that were pretty rosy. Bankman fried said his anxiety kept building through these massive customer withdrawals, what essentially was a bank run at FTX. And he said on November the 7th, so five days after Bankman fried first felt nervous, he was no longer confident that FTX would be able to get customers their money. November the 7th was just a few weeks ago, which reminds us how quickly this company has unraveled and how a matter of days. It might have cost some people millions and other people uh, a little bit more even conceivably. So what was his goal in talking about all this? Bateman Fried said explicitly he's not reckoning with his own future right now. He's not thinking about criminal charges he could face or where he might end up. But a couple of points I want to make here. First, if someone is accused of orchestrating a massive complex fraud, it would not be the worst thing to come across as absent-minded, maybe incapable. And the second point is, Bankman Freed keeps saying he wants to get customers their money back, but he no longer works for FTX, Steve. He relinquished control of it. So not only is Bankman Freed taking a personal risk, talking as much as he is, he's also proving to be a big irritant to FTX's new management, who accused him in a court filing, Steve, of making erratic and misleading public statements. NPR's David Gura, thanks for listening in. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. All right. How long do you think you could last on strike? A day? Maybe. A month? Tough, but doable for a lucky few. What about over a year? About 500 coal miners in Alabama have been on strike for 20 months. Stephen Bissaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports on how the miners and the company have been able to last this long. Look, coal mining is a rough gig, but the pay's good, and coal miner Brian Kelly says you build a family underground. I used to go to work. This is no kidding saying, I love my job. Get up every morning, I love my job. I can't believe I got this job. But that changed in 2016. These mines in Brookwood, Alabama had just gone through bankruptcy. So the company Warrior Met Coal cut the miners' pay and benefits. Those days were tough. Nobody's smiling on the porch. It's doom and gloom. Since then, these mines have been making good money. But the miners' pay and benefits haven't returned to what they were. So the miners have been striking for the last 20 months. But a strong motivation doesn't make up for more than a year and a half without a salary, which makes it surprising Kelly and lots of other miners say they're doing okay. And I know some people probably ain't, but as a whole, I think we're holding out really well. That's thanks to plenty of support and coordination from the United Mine Workers Union. There's a lot going on behind the scenes to keep these miners going, like the union's food pantry. Other unions and supporters have sent checks and supplies to keep the pantry stocked with things like backpacks, canned goods, and Christmas presents. The food pantry is actually supporting some of our Christmas for our kids. At least I know my kid won't go without Christmas. Antoine McGee is one of the striking miners rallying outside a local union hall. We are! We are! U.M. U.M. The miners also come here for another type of support, cash. Over the years, the miners' union dues have funded a war chest meant to get the workers through a strike. Every two weeks, the miners head inside the union hall to pick up their $800 strike checks and share gossip. You talking to Reggie? He doing all right? Yeah, he's working at uh, people with you. So the other thing to know is that a lot of these miners have side jobs, like at the supermarket Piggly Wiggly. The money's usually nothing close to what they made before the strike, but enough to cover at least some bills for miners like McGee. I have family and friends that has created jobs, such as plumbing jobs and home remodeling that they could have got anybody to do, but they chose me to do it just to make that money. Now, it's not just the miners who've held out for 600-plus days on strike. It's the company, Warrior Met Coal, 
both of its main underground mines are affected by this strike. But one thing keeping Warrior Met going is the high price of steel. The coal from these mines is a key part of making that steel. In fact, steel is in such high demand that Warrior Met made nearly $100 million last quarter. Warrior Met's also been able to find replacement workers, and that includes some formerly striking miners, because 20 months on strike is still a big financial burden. And for the miners that have lasted this long, like McGee, financial support is only part of it. You also need support from your families, the ones made above and below ground. You can go out and make the money, but without that moral and mental support, you know, you can't make it. You gotta have your family backing you up and friends to back you up on a strike this long. So with dug-in, well-supported coal miners on one side and a coal company making millions in profit without them on the other, this 20-month-long strike looks likely to last well into the new year. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basaha in Brookwood, Alabama. This is NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Your monthly contribution to WBUR says that you value journalism that keeps you informed. You value reporting that's rooted in your community. You value independent journalism as the foundation of our democracy. More than what your contribution says about you is what it can do. Your monthly contribution to WBUR makes the station's independent journalism possible. Go to WBUR.org or call one 800 909-9287. Scott Simon there, the host of Weekend Edition Saturday, one of the hosts of NPR's morning podcast, First Up. Did you know, Deb, that he's been with the network for over four decades? I did not know that. Yes. Wow. Perhaps he, uh, a quick Wikipedia search shows me that he has been with NPR longer than I've been alive. Oh. <laughs> so, anyway, we know that you value that kind of experience, and it is experience. It's the reason why you listen every morning. He's on the national desk while we have people like Anthony Brooks and Steve Brown here locally, people with decades of experience who can call up any random piece of Massachusetts history faster than any computer. Also on that list, Deb Becker, who's here with me this morning on this last fundraiser. But I'm not old. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was sorry, I forgot to say that. On this last fundraiser of the year to ask you to help us raise what we need for the year. And thank you so much for helping us this hour. You have really stepped up. Now we need to keep going with this momentum on this last fundraiser of the year. So you go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and give to show your support for WBUR. This is Morning Edition on W on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Deb, take it away. I'm I'm just going randomly. <laughs> well, thanks. Good morning, everyone. This is it. Last fundraiser of the year here at WBUR, and we're very happy to just take a couple of minutes and remind you really of how important you are to this radio station. We cannot do this without you. We just couldn't. And uh, so we're counting on you to make a pledge during this year-end fund drive to really be the foundation. You and your financial support are the foundation of all that we do here at WBUR. All the news that you get from WBUR and we get the funds 
during fundraisers just like this one. We say, hey, can you help us out? What can you do at this time of year as, as folks are considering which organizations they're going to donate to? What can you do for the news that's important to you? Do it now during this fundraiser and help us have the resources we need to be the source of independent journalism for you. And and we have terrific thank you gifts that we're so lucky to be able to offer. If you can donate $12 a month to the news at WBUR, we will send you as our thanks a WBUR sweatshirt. Now after 7 tonight, that sweatshirt will cost you a $20 a month donation for the news. So right now, $12 a month gets you the WBUR sweatshirt as our thanks. Here's the number again, 800-909-9287. The website's WBUR.org. And you know, we spoke with our CEO, Margaret Lowe, about all of this voluntary support from listeners like you and what it does for this radio station. Let's listen. It's important to say that the largest portion of our funding does come from listeners and people who rely on WBUR, and that can be $5 a month, and it can be $5,000 a year, and it can be $50,000 a year. Every little bit really makes a pretty gigantic difference. I, she was also telling me, I, I was uh, honored to do that interview myself, and she was telling me about, you know, why it matters so much that people give to WBUR. And, and she doesn't say give to WBUR over other places. She recognizes that people really want to support a lot of organizations at the end of the year. But we are coming to you right now to sh- to you know, tell you what we've done, remind you of what we've brought you all year, and ask you to keep that service coming to you in your community. And when you do, with a gift of $12 a month, you get a WBUR sweatshirt, and it is gray, and it says WBUR stacked in stack type, Boston's NPR News. It's unisex, it's fashion forward, it has a ribbed waistband and cuffs, so it's really nice. And we are trying to show the people of Boston, we we know that you want to show the people of Boston and the region just how much WBUR is a part of the community and you want to keep it as part of the community. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And let's gush for a moment here about how great our listeners are, right? Because we've gotten some big gifts this Mm -hmm. morning. Holy cow. Thank you so much uh, for those of you who were able to give that amount. I think at least one $5,000 gift this morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you not only for taking the time to donate, but for recognizing that this kind of journalism is important. It's critical, especially right now. So we heard a terrific story explaining what's happening in the imploding uh, crypto FTX Mm -hmm. company, right? And Sam Bankman-Fried speaking in New York against his lawyer's advice. Mm -hmm. What's happening with the coal miners' strike in Alabama? What's happening in Boston? We're here for you. We need you to be there for us during this fund fund drive, the last fundraiser of the year. Call now, 800-909-9287 or online at WBUR.org. Thanks so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event through January 2nd. Now in business news, this spring, the Red Sox will wear a uniform patch advertising Springfield-based insurer Mass Mutual. It'll be the first time Sox players wear a so-called ad patch. The addition to their uniforms is part of a 10-year sponsorship deal worth $170 million. Part of the deal includes a new 80-foot Mass Mutual sign over the center field scoreboard at Fenway Park. It will replace the iconic John Hancock sign that hung there for 30 years.
Cambridge-based Alnylam Pharmaceuticals is the best big company to work for in Massachusetts. That's according to a new list out from the Boston Globe. It's the second year that Alnylam was at the top of the list for companies with more than 1,000 employees. Cambridge-based Relay Therapeutics ranked at the top for companies with between 250 and 1,000 workers. Ristorante Fiore in the North End is closing its doors after more than 40 years in business. The owner of the Hanover Street Restaurant says it's time to retire. It'll close on Christmas Day. It's 7.51. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. As you may have heard, the Prince and Princess of Wales are in town. They're here to award the Earthshot Prize, which recognizes innovative solutions to environmental problems. Among the many things going on, a group of local artists is putting on a free performance tonight at the Boston Center for the Arts. It centers black voices in the fight against climate disaster. WBUR's Amelia Mason was at a rehearsal. Think the Bronx, a.k.a. the Boogie Boogie Down. Think the birthplace of hip-hop. Think every birth is a rupture. Well, when you say think, you got to give me some time to okay. scratch. So okay. do it. The folklore performing artist G-Jaw and DJ Real P are talking through the music cues for a passage in the show that connects the advent of hip-hop to the creation of the Cross Bronx Expressway. Think white man's highway through a black man's home. Think asthma. These lines were written by Portia Olaiwola, Boston's poet laureate, who also conceived the show. She says she was thinking about the disproportionate impact of pollution on Black communities. There's a stat that suggests Black and brown folks contribute the least to pollution, but also suffer the most from it or are victims of the most of it. Olai Wola and co-curator Sierra Michelle Peters wanted to address this kind of environmental injustice through the aesthetic and literary genre called Afrofuturism. Here's Peters. When I think about it from the literary perspective, I'm thinking about perhaps very plainly like Black science fiction. In some ways, science fiction speaks uniquely to the Black experience, Peters says. This apocalypse that everybody's talking about, this dystopia that everybody's talking about, has already been in effect for Black people. The fact that asking for your freedom is dystopic, asking for rights is dystopic. But Peters and Olaiwola also wanted to infuse the show with the radical optimism of the Earthshot Prize, which is focused on solutions to environmental crises. Olaiwola says it's a vision of the future in which possibility blooms. Every dark place is also a moment of birth, whether that be a seed in the dirt or a womb or, you know, and every birth is a rupture. So I think there's, we're coming to the space to talk about the dark as well as the birthing. But I think what's most important is that the gathering is happening. The show is titled All Right, an homage to the Kendrick Lamar song that became an anthem in Black Lives Matter protests. All Right will bring together local Black artists with a variety of backgrounds, from a drag performer to a singer to a dance ensemble. Wola says she asked each to perform something specific related to the theme, but also to choose some of their own work that expresses Black joy. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Amelia Mason. All Right is free and open to the public. It's tonight at 7.30 at the Boston Center for the Arts Plaza Theater. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brian O'Donovan's Christmas Celtic Sojourn, celebrating 20 years, December 10th to 18th, New Bedford, Worcester, Rockport, Boston, and streaming. ChristmasCeltic.com. This is Anne-Marie Sievertson, co-host of the WBUR podcast Endless Thread. For thousands of people across greater Boston and beyond, WBUR is a lifeline, a reliable, trusted source of news, facts, analysis, and truth. When you support WBUR, you strengthen and extend that lifeline. You protect WBUR as a resource for a whole community of listeners who rely on us. Becoming a supporter of WBUR means that every story, every interview, every second of breaking news, and every moment of joy you hear, you made that possible. You gave that to everyone who turns to WBUR to help them understand our region, our nation, and our world. So please, go to WBUR.org and make a contribution to WBUR for yourself and for your community, for someone who might not be able to give. You are our lifeline. Thank you. Just in the past few minutes, you've heard some incredible examples of our very well-rounded coverage of things like arts and the environment. The story a few minutes ago brought together so many elements that are at the heart of what makes, makes this region special. It's theater, it's sense of race, it's sense of community. You get reporting about things like that along with Things like the economy, the merger of major supermarket chains, and the impact it's going to have here in Massachusetts, the protests in China. We know you want to know about all of that. We want to bring it to you every single day. We've done that for the past year. You've depended on us. Now we need to depend on you for the coming year. Please help us out. We have hourly goals this morning, and we uh, for this past hour, it was such a success. You guys were so amazing. You really stepped up and met the goal, and we really, really appreciate it. Now the goal for 9 o'clock is $7,500. So let's keep that going. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Deb Becker. Oh, and I should tell you before, sorry, Deb, it's a, if you, to give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Apologies, Deb. No worries. Uh, we set these goals each hour because what that does really is it keeps us on track. This is how much we need to raise to stay on track. If we do that, it's a benchmark, if you will, right? It gets us closer to our overall fundraising goal. It helps us end this fund drive successfully. So we've got 7500 right? $7,500 mm-hmm. to raise by 9 o'clock in the next hour. Help us do it. Help us make this hour's fundraising goal and get us closer to having a successful year-end fund drive. And what does that mean? That means more news for you. That means that you have strong resources behind the independent journalism that you count on every day. That's all we're asking you to do. Do what you can. And, and I mean, it's been amazing this morning. We've gotten some terrific large gifts from folks this morning. Thank you so much if you you. were able, right? Thank Mm -hmm. you. Thank you for recognizing the work that we do and for contributing to WBUR. If you haven't had a chance to make a pledge, do it now. If you're thinking about organizations you'd like to donate to this time of year, put WBUR on that list and help keep the journalism strong. You know, we know that many of you 
turn to us because you trust us. You trust reporters and hosts here. You, you trust reporters like uh, local reporters like Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks. You trust the national hosts, Mary Louise Kelly, uh, Lachmi Singh, uh, and reporter Tamara Keith. Hey there, it's Tamara Keith from NPR. I thrive on deadlines. I don't think I'd get anything done without them. Just ask my editor. If you're the same way, I'm here to help you out with a little nudge to get something important done. I'm going to give you a deadline for donating to this station. You can knock it out in five minutes, I swear. Start a timer. Your deadline is now. Here's how to give. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Be a part of what Morning Edition listeners are showing themselves to be. People who want to support this station. People who value the kind of news that we bring you for no cost to anyone. And we know that a lot of people don't have the means to, to help out right now. And you are doing what it takes to cover them so they can continue to be informed and we can continue to improve our community even while some of us take a hit. Others are stepping up. Thank you so much. We need to keep this going. Our goal for nine o'clock is $7,500. We're gonna get there uh, because we've been getting there and we so appreciate it. Uh, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we have to mention the sweatshirt. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no worries. $12 <laughs> a month, and we will send you this terrific WBUR sweatshirt as our thanks. And that goes up to a $20 a month donation after 7 o'clock tonight. So get the sweatshirt for $12 a month for the news. Call now. Thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden will host his first state dinner at the White House tonight for French President Emmanuel Macron. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports the visit symbolizes the recovery of a key relationship that hit a low point last year over a submarine deal. France is the U.S.'s oldest ally, and Macron is also at the center of some of the biggest global issues of the day, including the Russian war in Ukraine, China, and climate change. Yet there are still challenges. Martin Kensey, the director of the German Marshall Fund's Paris office, says France is concerned about how provisions in Biden's climate legislation could put European economies at a disadvantage. If the Biden administration is, as it says it is, so committed to its uh, alliance around the world, it needs to take into consideration the effects of its domestic policies on these very allies. And he says European leaders may need to respond with their own provisions. Franco Ordonez, 
NPR News. The House has passed a measure to avert a potential freight rail strike next week. The legislation would force railroad unions to accept a contract. Some unions objected because the contract doesn't have enough paid sick leave included. The House passed a separate measure that would offer seven paid sick leave days each year to the workers. The legislation now goes to the Senate, where its fate is not clear. A congressional race in Colorado is heading for a recount. That's even though Republican incumbent Lauren Boebert's opponent conceded the race. From Colorado Public Radio, Stina Sieg has more. Boebert leads her Democratic challenger, Adam Frisch, by less than 600 votes, a small enough margin to trigger the recount. Historically, recounts in the state don't change the results much, but Frisch says it should help reaffirm public faith in the accuracy of the election system. The close race came as a surprise to many in the conservative majority district. Stina Sieg reporting. Today is World AIDS Day. HIV experts are calling out disparities that remain in fighting the epidemic. From member station WPLN in Nashville, Blake Farmer reports the American South accounts for more than half of all new cases in the U.S. Especially in the South, progress in combating the spread of HIV has stagnated, says Dr. Aima Ahankai. She's an HIV researcher and clinician at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. This is what happens, you know, in a public health communicable disease like this. If you take the brakes off, if you say, okay, oh, that's not a problem anymore, it doesn't exist, it actually won't go away, and in fact, it will get worse. Despite advances, including a daily pill that can prevent HIV infection, some communities have even seen higher transmission rates. Prevention groups say they're trying to ramp back up after the COVID pandemic threw off many testing events. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Prince and Princess of Wales will visit a community group in Chelsea today as part of their visit to the Boston area. The couple kicked off their three-day trip yesterday with a welcome ceremony at Boston City Hall. WBUR's Vanessa Ochevillo reports the bad weather didn't keep the crowds away. Among those who braved the rain and wind was Susanna Copeland, who now lives in Rowley but was born in England. Knowing that William and Kate have come to Boston is kind of awesome, and I think especially for what they're doing here, um, coming here for the environmental causes that they support. In his brief speech, Prince William said Boston was a natural choice to host the Earthshot Prize Ceremony, which recognizes environmental innovation. We are both looking forward to spending the next few days learning about the innovative ways the people of Massachusetts are tackling climate change. Today, the royals visit a climate startup in Somerville. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillo. Massachusetts gaming officials are meeting today to start the process of vetting sports betting applications. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission is set to finalize how it will decide if an application gets approved or denied. The commission is also planning to talk about how sports betting will get taxed. Regulators hope to start some form of sports betting ahead of the Super Bowl in February. The number of people seeking help for depression and anxiety in Massachusetts has doubled since 2019. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts says there were 8 million in-person and virtual mental health care visits in the third quarter of this year. The insurer says it's bumping up its mental health provider network by nearly 50 percent to meet the demand. Tonight, Boston's official Christmas tree will be lit on the common. WBUR's Dan Guzman explains the significance of the 45-foot white spruce. 
The tree is an annual gift to the city from the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. It's a thank you for Boston's quick response back in 1917 after an explosion devastated the capital city of Halifax. Tim Houston is the premier of Nova Scotia, and he'll be at tonight's lighting. He wants people to see the tree and know that his province remembers Boston's good deed from more than a century ago. I hope when they look at that, they they know that no act of kindness goes unnoticed. Really, when it's all said and done, no act of kindness goes unnoticed. And I want them to remember and be proud of what they did to help Nova Scotia in its time of need. The lighting ceremony begins tonight at 6. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. It's 8 of 7. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. The Celtics beat the Miami Heat 134-121 to last night at the Garden. The Seas have won five in a row. They'll host the Heat again tomorrow night. Tonight, the Patriots take on their division rivals, the Buffalo Bills, in Foxborough. A high wind advisory remains in effect throughout the day today. The winds will be strong, and it'll be partly sunny with a high around 40. Clear overnight with temperatures near 30, sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. We should get some rain on Saturday. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include Bed Bath & Beyond with storage products, too, featuring a curated selection of brands like Dyson, KitchenAid, and Ugg. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. I'm Lisa Mullins. WBUR is here to help us all think harder. When we tell you a story, we think about how it'll touch your mind and sometimes your heart. Support journalism that has deep meaning in your life by giving monthly at WBUR.org. Lisa Mullins, their host of All Things Considered, my counterpart in the afternoon. Um, I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of Morning Edition, and I'm here with Deb Becker, who reporter Deb Becker, who is actually me when I'm gone. So it's <laughs> nice to be in the same room with you. It is. Uh, we have, as Lisa mentioned, important coverage of things like the royal visit. Uh, I was actually wondering, Deb, if maybe those royals are listening while they're in town in wow. some of their limousines or something like that. Maybe. <laughs> Show them how this community works works together to keep its institutions strong. They should donate. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Let's impress them. We already are this morning. Let's keep going. We have a goal of $7,000 by 9 o'clock. We can make it. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 to give on this, our last fundraiser of the year. 1-800-909-9287. And we should also mention that we have a thank you gift this morning mm-hmm. uh, for your donation of $12 a month to support the news here at WBUR. We'll send you a WBUR sweatshirt. It's a terrific gray sweatshirt. It's really soft, great for this time of year. You can get it extra large so you can layer it over a bunch of other things to keep you nice and warm. And it's our thanks for your gift of $12 a month for the news. After seven o'clock tonight if you want one of these sweatshirts we require a gift of twenty dollars a month for the news so you're getting a deal right now take advantage of that get the sweatshirt but most importantly really get the feeling of pride Mm -hmm. that you'll have once you know that you have donated that you've helped support your public radio station you know so many stories feel so complicated now right it's it's complex to kind of get through a lot of the debate and uh the the real 
polarization absolutely right? uh, that's happened with a lot of issues so I think if you count on us to kind of cut through that complexity and help you make sense of the world then make your pledge today we spoke with uh, on point host Magna Chakrabarty uh, Magna about why it's important for all of us to slow down and examine the important stories of our time let's listen you know we're living in a very cacophonous world like literally physically it's very cacophonous we the TVs are blaring what they're blaring the traffic is loud what have you a really powerful story told on public radio through the human voice actually can provide us a little bit of space to slow down to listen deeply to take a rest and a breather from the barrage of headline news and feel that, you know, we're not missing anything by slowing down, by trying to understand at a more profound level, that in fact we're, we're getting more out of it. We all need a space where we can actually return to our deeply human selves and engage with the world uh, at a level and at a pace and at with an intimacy and understanding that actually helps us make more sense of the world, uh, even as it might seem, you know, on the surface a little quieter and a little slower. I think a lot of people respond very, very, very powerfully to that. Um, and that having a space to engage your whole self with the news um, is something that really matters to people. And I'm very proud to try to provide that kind of space every day. Yeah, absolutely. As she's so right, the the slowing down. I need to remember that every day. I hope we help each other remember that every morning. And you are stepping up for your community this morning. You're slowing down to recognize what WBUR does for you, how it informs the people around you, and how you need to support that institution. Um, $10, $12, maybe $1,000 if you can do it. We appreciate all gifts equally. We're just thankful for the gift. It shows us that we have your support, and that is what's most important. Go to WBOR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Our goal is $7,000 by 9 o'clock. And you know what? Talking about Megna, I think Megna would look great in this T-shirt. Uh, no, no, sweatshirt, That's sweatshirt that I'm wearing right now. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. I think anyone would look great in this sweatshirt. It's a WBUR sweatshirt. It's it's a really cool design, a little bit understated, but, you know, you get you get the message. That's sort of like the news here at WBUR. <laughs> Make a contribution of $12 a month for the news, and we will send you the WBUR sweatshirt as our thanks. $12 a month gets you the sweatshirt. After 7 o'clock tonight, you have to make a $20 a month contribution for the news to get the sweatshirt. So do it now. Pledge for all the news. Make your tax-deductible end-of-year contribution to WBUR to keep your public radio station strong. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287, or pledge online at WBUR.org. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. 
Okay, suppose you did something that really, really annoyed an old friend. You might try to make amends by inviting them to dinner. And that is roughly what President Biden is trying with the president of France. He's hosting Emmanuel Macron for the first state dinner of the Biden administration. France was offended when the U.S. cut a deal to sell submarines to Australia and cut the French out of the action. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is here to talk about this. Franco, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Why give the special attention? Well, you know, France is the U.S.'s oldest ally, and Macron was also the first guest for a state visit in the Trump administration. That says something. But, you know, the White House says France is also at the center of some of the biggest global issues of the day, the Russian war in Ukraine, China and the Indo-Pacific, and climate change. And Macron, who just won his second term, has become one of the most experienced leaders in Europe, even though he's young. He's become Biden's go-to person on transatlantic matters, especially since German Chancellor Angela Merkel retired and Britain's Boris Johnson resigned. So Biden is saying, OK, you're, you're important, but this is about money and power. The French were upset to be cut out of this submarine deal with Australia. Does this make the deal any less bad from a French perspective? I mean, it's, you know, it's a sign of better times. The deal the U.S. made, you know, to help Australia build nuclear submarines along with the U.K. essentially ended France's own arrangement to build submarines for Australia. And France, you're right, was so mad it recalled the, its ambassador from Washington, which is just something that doesn't really happen among allies. You know, there are some lingering reservations, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine really put that into perspective. Here's Celia Bula, a former policy advisor in the French Foreign Ministry, speaking about that. The war has reminded everybody of what is really at stake and what is the most important. And the most important is transatlantic solidarity. But, you know, she also says that the war hasn't erased all the challenges the two countries face. Okay, so pageantry in Washington is nice, I guess. I'm sure they'll have nice wine on the table, but the, the French already have nice wine. And, and Macron is here for three days, which is longer than dinner. So I assume that France wants something more substantive than dinner. What is it? Definitely. I mean, France is particularly concerned about Biden's Made in America provisions, which are in the recent climate and infrastructure bill that Biden signed, as it relates particularly to electric vehicles, which could put European car makers at a disadvantage. Martin Kensey is the director of the Paris office of the German Marshall Fund, and he says the economic measures taken by the Biden administration make perfect sense from a domestic American perspective. But if it has damaging effects for allies, this has to be discussed. Um, and, and this is something to be reconciled by the Biden administration. You know, Stephen, he says otherwise European leaders will have to counter because they too face their own domestic pressures. And Macron has even warned that Europe may need some kind of by European provisions. Hmm. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez talking with us on this day that Emmanuel Macron is coming over for dinner. Franco, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. Last night, the University of Idaho held a vigil for the four students who were stabbed to death in an off-campus house on November 13th. Police have yet to identify a suspect, and that is casting a shadow over the campus. NPR's Martin Costi reports from Moscow, Idaho. Usually, this would be an intense time of year here, a time for exams and final semester projects. But this week, things are quiet, because after Thanksgiving, many of the 9,000 students enrolled here just didn't come back. Freshman Misty Gardner is one of those who did. I kind of came back because I didn't want my friends to feel alone because a few of my friends were here by themselves because their parents made them come back. But she says school is hardly back to normal. Some of my classes were either canceled altogether 
or put on Zoom or made completely optional. And I don't even have finals in most of my classes because of what's happened. What's happened is the gruesome middle-of-the-night murders of Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, and Madison Mogan, and the fact that police have, quote, no named suspects, despite massive help from the FBI and state police. They've tried to reassure students and the surrounding community, but they've also been very selective about what information they release. This is Moscow Police Captain Roger Lanier being pressed on that question at the most recent news conference. We've told the public very clearly from the beginning that we believe it was a targeted attack. I mean, to be honest, you're going to have to trust us on that at this point because we're not going to release why we think that. As the police continue to withhold details to protect their investigation, the professors are trying to help their students finish the semester. All right, uh, so just uh, giving those folks online a couple of minutes to have their audio connected. Assistant Um, Professor Caitlin Cieslik-Miskamen is starting her media history class with four students present. Usually there'd be 25. More students are logging in remotely using the system that was set up during the pandemic. After the murders, the University of Idaho told professors to be flexible with students. It's really hard to figure out how much to push them to power through. Cislik Miskamen says she wants to give students room to grieve or find comfort with family while still finding a way to finish academic projects. She says what's distracting the students isn't so much a sense of fear for their personal safety. It's less the fear and the more it's just not knowing really anything. It's not knowing if this was targeted. It's not knowing when we're going to know more. Students are also getting fed up with the curiosity of the outside world. It's been more than two weeks since the incident, and there are still reporters prowling the campus. Yeah, I was a little bit understanding at first, and then it started to become frustrating. Now it's like straight aggravating because it, like, leave us alone a little bit. Um, Junior Tasia Mendenhall says what's really wearing her down are all the amateur sleuths on the internet, on places like Instagram and Reddit, who think they can solve this case from afar, often by taking aim at potential suspects. Harassing, like, the roommates of the victims and, like, anyone that they think could be involved, and it's like, you don't know anything, you're not from here, why, why are you so invested in this? I don't appreciate it. The online sleuthing has been so intense, the police have had to deny many of the theories, which they say are, quote, stoking community fears. At last night's campus vigil, live streamed around the region, there was a similar sentiment expressed during the closing prayer. We pray for clarity in the midst of our uncertainty. Guard our hearts and minds from speculation and rumor that someday we may have some answers. Martin Costi, NPR News, Moscow, Idaho. Mexico is one of the great soccer countries in the world, which explains why Mexicans are so sad about their national soccer team. It was eliminated in the worst performance at a World Cup since 1978. NPR's Ada Peralta reports. Even before the World Cup started, Mexicans were already girding for heartbreak. Jorge Pineda, 29, was selling team jerseys near the Zócalo. But when I ask him how he thinks his team will do, his face contorts. Pues francamente mal. Frankly, he says, bad. Mexico no, no lo veo como para 
pasar ni siquiera la fase de grupos. He says the team isn't even good enough to get past the group stage, the first round of the World Cup. Mexicans have reason to despair. This football-crazed nation has never won a World Cup, and the last time the team made it to quarterfinals was back in 1986. Pineda says sometimes he lets himself dream that his tricolor could win it all. Pero... But, he says, stopping himself, the higher we fly, the harder the fall. Across the street, Aztec healers perform ritual cleansings. With conks and herbs and fire, they promise to cleanse your problems. Maybe, I suggest, the national team should have stopped here first. Pineda laughs. He's not sure anything would work on them. But miracles do happen here in Mexico. The Virgin Guadalupe appeared to San Juan Diego and left her image on his mantle. It's why so many Mexicans became Catholic. The Cruz Azul, the bad news bears of Mexican soccer, made it to the final six times, and each time they choked. But last year, they finally won a championship. But as the World Cup kicked off, the Mexican squad looked mediocre. They tied to Poland in a scoreless match. They lost 2-0 to Argentina. And that left them with an almost impossible task to stay in the tournament. They not only had to beat Saudi Arabia, they had to do it with multiple goals. After the first half, it actually seemed possible. The three came alive, they attacked aggressively, and the crowd watching on a big screen in downtown Mexico City started to believe. Lupita Mercado says, as a Mexican, hope is what dies last. Her grandma used to tell her, the cornered cat will always make a great escape. And for the second half, Mexico defied all odds. A goal at 46 minutes. A goal at 51 minutes. In the end, a staggering performance. 24 shots on goal. They beat the Saudis 2-1. to one. But it wasn't enough. The team missed the next round on a goal difference. Over and over, I heard, this is football in Mexico. You let yourself believe, and it always ends in heartbreak. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. This afternoon on All Things Considered, kids in a Texas school district face the aftermath of pandemic lockdowns. They spent a long time away from in-person school, and they struggle to adjust even after a long time back. You can stream NPR on your smartphone or on your computer or, stick with me here, you can stream us on the radio. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. 
Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. In the last few minutes, you've heard stories about the culture around the World Cup. Just these are the details, the context that actually makes stories interesting. And that's what TV doesn't have time for. We bring you stories like that. And a few minutes before that, an update on the murders of the Ohio students. We follow up on the news when other outlets maybe have moved on. And we keep you up to date on all that news throughout the day. All you have to do is turn on the radio or use the WB app or go to WBUR.org. We are there for you. So recognize when that when you're making your year-end contributions that are just happen to be tax deductible. Uh, we have, and you are already doing great. It's, um, we're down to $5,600 to raise by 9 a.m. Thank you so much for everyone who's stepping up. Please join them. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shinoy here with Deb Becker. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. So we, we have, what, about a half an hour left to reach this hour's fundraising goal. So we're asking you to take a moment right now. We understand it's busy. You've got a lot going on. You're tuning into the radio station. You want to find out what's going on. And and we say, hey, consider that habit. And what would you pay for it? And make your tax-deductible donation for the news today during the this year-end fundraiser. We're counting on you. You provide us with most of the uh, money we need to bring you the news. So we're asking you to please make a contribution today. We have a terrific thank you gift today. If you can make a $12 a month donation for the news here at WBUR, we'll send you a WBUR sweatshirt. It's a terrific gray, very soft sweatshirt. You can layer underneath it. It'll keep you nice and warm. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect time of year uh, for this sweatshirt. And again, it's for $12 a month. And we should note that after 7 o'clock tonight, you would have to pledge $20 a month to get this sweatshirt. So take advantage of the fact that you can do it now for 12 Make that pledge $12 a month, $3 a week mm-hmm. uh, for your public radio listening, and you'll get the sweatshirt as our thanks. Here's the number to call with your pledge. It's 1-800-909-9287, and the website's WBUR.org. I'm Deepa Fernandez, and I am a co-host of Here and Now. So I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and there were never really any people of colour, any immigrants. Um, People like my family were not journalists. We didn't see them on TV. We didn't hear them on the radio. And when I started college, a professor, he said that I belonged on the campus radio station. As I walked in the door, they looked at me and they said, can you read? And I was a bit confused, but I looked at them and said, uh, yeah. And they said, great, because the newsreader didn't show up. Uh, They thrust some copy in my hands and they said, you'll be on in five minutes. And instead of reading that copy in five minutes, I went to the phone and I called my mum and I called my sister and they proceeded to call every Indian in Sydney who then proceeded to call everybody they knew. And in five minutes when that mic went on, I nailed that script And everyone was listening and it spread through the community and it was this amazing thing. And then I realized the power of a microphone. I feel like at Here and Now, we tell stories every single day of communities 
that matter, of people who are part of our society, of people whose voices we need in the conversation, because all voices are necessary to help us all be informed and and make better decisions. If you agree, if you believe, just like uh, Deepa said, if you believe in that kind of journalism, support it. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much for what you're doing. We have $2,900 to go. We are chipping away at it. We just need to make it happen in the next half hour. So WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story. Directed by Michael Showalter. In select theaters tomorrow. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A formal welcome ceremony is scheduled at the White House next hour for French President Emmanuel Macron. He's on a three-day state visit to the U.S. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley says Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is now more than nine months old, will be a major issue for Macron and President Biden. Macron has always kept the lines of communication open with Russian President Vladimir Putin. After Ukraine's recent battlefield successes, some U.S. officials are saying it may be time to negotiate. It is very carefully said, but it is clearly said that Ukraine cannot carry on a war with such a degree of intensity for another six or nine months. That's French journalist and foreign policy specialist Christian Macarion. He says while the UK, Poland, and the Baltic states take a much harder line on Russia, the US and France agree the war must be brought to a close without destroying Russia. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Air raid alerts have been issued across Ukraine today, days after the country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, warned Russia was preparing another series of missile and drone attacks. Ukraine's border service is urging Ukrainians to go to shelters. Millions of people in Ukraine are without power, water, and heat as a result of Russian airstrikes. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark is moving up the leadership ranks for House Democrats. The party picked its top three leaders yesterday. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. Clark has represented the 5th Congressional District for nearly 10 years. As party whip, she's now the second highest-ranking Democratic member of the House. She indicated her caucus is willing to work with Republicans who will take over as the majority party in January. Our door is open for any member from across the aisle who wants to get to work for the American people. And if they want to divide, if they want to obstruct, if they want to have political theater instead of finding those solutions the American people want, then we will be here to oppose. Clark says the party is ready to work for all Americans. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. 
Wildlife officials are ending rescue efforts for a pod of pilot whales that were found stranded on Cape Cod. Six whales beached themselves near East Ham on Monday. A spokesperson for the International Fund for Animal Welfare says four whales were euthanized yesterday because of rapidly declining health. One calf died, another swam offshore and has not been located. The Prince and Princess of Wales are in Boston this week for the Earthshot Prize Awards. Those honor environmental innovators. The city's poet laureate, city's poet laureate is putting a local spin on the awards with a performance tonight at the Boston Center for the Arts. WBUR's Amelia Mason has more. The show, conceived by Boston's poet laureate Portia Olaiwola, features seven local black artists and examines environmental justice through an Afrofuturist lens. Here's Olaiwola. I'm fascinated with the idea of the earth shot, but also, you know, what does that mean for folks of color? And more specifically, what does that mean for black folks? And what does that mean for black folks in Boston? Folklore performing artist Jija will present new work by Olaiwola, and a drag performer, singer, and dance ensemble will also take the stage. The event is free and open to the public. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. It's 8.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. In sports, with the Prince and Princess of Wales courtside, the Celtics topped the Miami Heat 134-121 to last night at the Garden. The Seas finished the month of November with a 14-2 and record. They'll host the Heat again tomorrow. Tonight, the Patriots will be in Foxborough to take on the Buffalo Bills. A mix of sun and clouds today, and the high winds continue. Temperatures will be right around 40. Tonight, it falls to the low 30s. Then we end the week tomorrow with a sunny day in the low to mid-40s. Right now, it's 36. Seven degrees in Boston at 8:35. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com/public. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. We have a story on the complexities of facing climate change. The United States is trying to do that in a big way. It's trying to encourage the already growing market for electric cars. They move cleanly, assuming they get a battery charge from a clean power source. And this summer, Congress put money on the line. A law extends tax credits for people who buy electric vehicles and also tax credits that encourage building more vehicles in the United States. Turns out it's hard to do both of those things at once, which is why automakers and others are lobbying for change. NPR's Camila Dominoski is here to bring us up to speed. Good morning. Good morning. What's the plan right now? Well, this tax credit is requiring that vehicles be made in America and also starting on January 1st that the batteries inside those cars and a big chunk of the minerals they're made out of come from the United States or from a short list of designated countries. Okay, that sounds good. Made in America. What's so hard about that? 
While some of the stuff inside batteries, like graphite, the U.S. simply doesn't make, some of the other stuff, it's actually kind of hard to determine where it comes from, whether a vehicle meets these requirements. It's not 100% clear at this point which vehicles actually satisfy every one of these requirements. Hmm. The IRS is promising some answers by the end of December, which is coming up fast. But we already know that lots of vehicles, especially from foreign automakers, definitely will not qualify for the tax credit. Companies are scrambling to figure out how fast they can change that, which obviously is kind of the point of the law, right? To move manufacturing. But the challenge is, if you also want to incentivize electric vehicle sales, until that new supply chain is built, consumers won't feel the full benefit of the of the incentives, which is one reason why there's an intense lobbying push right now to try to relax some of the requirements. Okay, but if the idea is to change the industry, what's the argument for instead changing the requirements? Well, take one of these restrictions, which is basic one, that the vehicle be built in the U.S. I spoke to Jose Munoz, the chief operating officer of Hyundai. He was lobbying about this to the government. He says, look, Hyundai is going to make batteries and electric vehicles in Georgia, in the U.S. They announced that before this law was passed, but it takes years to build a factory. And until that's done, no tax credit for them. We think this is uh, being unfair because we are definitely committed and aligned and, and we, we walk the talk. So we feel it is unfair that then as a consequence of doing the right thing, now we get penalized, that's all. And it's not just companies, the governments of Japan, South Korea, the European Union, they've all objected more fundamentally to this requirement. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, he's in D.C. for a state visit. And last night he said this is fragmenting the West. All that said, the law was passed. It was very, very hard to pass any law at all. Mm -hmm. And now the House of Representatives is changing hands. Is there any chance this law would be changed? Well, unless Congress acts, this is the law, but the IRS is going to release guidance about how to interpret the law. And so people like Munoz say maybe that include, could include some relief as well as more clarity about things like the minerals requirement. What does all this mean for people maybe thinking about buying an electric car, wondering if they get a tax credit? It's been confusing, and uh, keep stay tuned for more updates from the IRS, basically. We'll stay tuned for more updates from you. Camila, thanks so much. Thank you. NPR's Camila Dominoski. The personal information of thousands of asylum seekers was mistakenly revealed to the public this week during a routine update of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement website. Sensitive personal information of immigrants is supposed to be kept private to protect them from the violence and repression they're fleeing from. An investigation is underway. But for more on what this means, we're joined by Hamid Aliaziz, immigration policy reporter with the L.A. Times. So what happened here? I mean, how did all this information, personal information, end up on the ICE website? This is actually something that ICE, as you mentioned, is investigating. They say this uh, data was erroneously posted on their website. And they've begun the process of trying to, you know, really uh, rectify what happened. Now, has, has anything like this ever happened before? Not to my knowledge, you know, the, the scale, more than 6,000 immigrants having their personal information posted on the website like this, and especially like you mentioned, uh, asylum seekers and others seeking protection in the U.S. having their information being posted is unprecedented as far as I know. This information is really closely guarded. And anytime any reporter, especially you know myself covering immigration, comes across anybody seeking asylum in the U.S., 
they're very cautious about the use of their name, where they live, and, and what they're seeking asylum from. So the fact that this was posted is really you know, staggering. Yeah, I mean, any piece of information is met with, or at least if you ask, it's met with resistance or at least reluctance because any piece of information can be used against them. Um, ICE, have they fixed the problem? Do they know what exactly happened? They're still investigating, you know, what exactly happened, and they're trying to, you know, figure out steps to prevent this. As far as fixing the situation for these individuals, they're contacting uh, the more than 6,000 immigrants, you know, again, notifying them, their attorneys, uh, they're uh, reaching out to people who downloaded the data and actually telling them to delete it. Uh, They've said that they will uh, not deport any of these immigrants until they figure out whether or not the disclosure of the data will affect their asylum cases. All right, so at least there's that. They won't deport them. But I mean, what does this mean, I think, overall for the immigrants uh, whose information was exposed? What have now they been exposed to? We really have to come to see you know, what happens there. Attorneys, I think, are quite worried about this information getting out there. I was talking to, to one attorney who found the name of one of their clients on the list, and they were scheduling calls to notify uh, the individual about what happened. Um, you know, all of these individuals are in detention. Their locations of where they are in detention is mentioned in the list. So I can only imagine the surprise the immigrants will have when they realize that their personal information has been posted on the web. Has the Biden administration made any statement or responded at all? No, but I mean, I will note that, you know, this was pretty quick on ISIS part to not only step in and say that they deleted information, but that extra step of saying they would not deport these individuals until they figured out whether or not uh, this the posting of this information would affect their cases is, you know, a pretty strong step. I mean, they're really appearing to take this quite seriously. You mentioned uh, this is investigated, at least currently being internally investigated by ICE. Any outside investigation in the works on this? Unclear. We've reached out to some uh, you know, congressional committees to see whether or not they're planning any investigations. All of this broke late Wednesday, so it's, it's unclear whether or not any other outside bodies will be investigating what happened here. That's Hamed Aliaziz, immigration policy reporter with the Los Angeles Times. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about making a modest contribution to create stories and conversations that make your world bigger. Hi, it's Robin Young. Give $10 or $15 a month an ongoing contribution, which will help sustain WBUR for everyone who listens. Please give now at WBUR.org. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Deb Becker at our last fundraiser of the year. We have $2,900 to go to raise in the next 15 minutes or so. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 1-800-909-9287. You know, it really is the common goal, the common goal of appreciating independent journalism, uh, bringing you stories about the world that help you understand the world, form your views and opinions about the world whether it's stories about politics or about climate or about the arts. It's all here for you. And we're asking you to take a moment right now and make a pledge and support these stories. Support this shared common goal of quality independent journalism because we can't do it without you. Here's the number again, 800-909-9287. The website where you can make your donation for your public radio station is WBUR.org. But do it now. Make that tax-deductible contribution at the end of the year. Help us have a successful fund drive. And we should say we have a great thank you gift this morning. Where else do you get a thank you gift uh, for donating? You do here. Uh, It's uh, a beautiful WBUR sweatshirt as our thanks for your gift of $12 a month for the news. And now after 7 o'clock tonight, you'd have to pledge $20 a month for the news to get this sweatshirt. But right now, if you make that commitment to spend $12 a month for your public radio listening, we will send you the WBUR sweatshirt as our thanks. And, And again, it is all about joining together, helping us raise the money we need to bring you the news that you want. We spoke with On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty about how your contribution, even a small contribution, every month will create something much larger. I love climbing the mountains of New England, especially partial to the New Hampshire ones. So, you know, when when you get to the top of Mount Monadnock or any New England mountain and you see the, the cairns there, the little pile of rocks that people have added every time someone summits and you put your your rock on the cairn. It always reminds me of my absolute favorite Disney movie of all time, technically Pixar, but Disney movie, Moana. Really love that film. And there's a scene in Moana where she goes to the top of the mountain on her island with her father. And there's a cairn there at the top of the island and it's every every chief uh, that her people have ever had. And he says, when you, he says to Moana, when you lay your stone on top of this island, you raise us all higher. And to me, in a sense, that's what great journalism does, and that's what contributions to great journalism do. Your contribution is like that stone added to the edifice of public service journalism. And when you add that stone, it lifts us all higher. It makes our journalism better. and. So that's why I think it matters. It matters to give um, because you make a, it makes a big difference to what we can do uh, and how we can serve people. Um, and it lifts us all, our entire community. And I can tell that you agree because you are stepping up. We only have $2,100 to go to raise before 9 o'clock. And you are you are showing up for us. And thank you, Morning Edition audience. Well, thank you for to our listeners. We really appreciate it. We want to show that we can do it again. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Step up to make sure this really important journalism continues. Show that you value deep, complete journalism at, at every level. We bring you national and local, and we 
bring you a lot of other stuff like the WBUR Today newsletter, which just dropped with an update about the two razor thin state house races that are officially headed to recounts. So step up to make sure this journalism is supported and continues. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. $2,100 left to reach this hour's goal. Each hour we set a, a goal, and if we make that goal, we're closer to having an overall successful year-end fund drive. $2,100 in the next 11 minutes. We can reach that that goal with your pledge. Call now, 800-909-9287 or pledge online at WBUR. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. This is W.B. War's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The British have arrived. The Prince and Princess of Wales will visit Chelsea in Somerville today as part of their visit to the Boston area. The couple drew a large crowd to Boston City Hall yesterday for a welcome ceremony. W.B. War's Vanessa Ochevillio was there. Thousands of people waited in the rain and wind to catch Prince William and Princess Kate. First-year law student Rachel Doan was among them. Doan says she's been following the royal family since she was a teen. I used to read books about them like all through high school and now I'm all the way up in law school and so when I heard they were coming to Boston and I could have a chance to walk down here and meet them, I was so excited. The royal family has faced controversy and a number of scandals involving some of its members. The Netflix series The Crown dramatizes some of the less flattering moments of Queen Elizabeth's reign, but Joan's fascination holds steady. I've always like had this obsession with them, even like with the crown being out now and you see like all their imperfections and stuff like that. It's still fascinating because we didn't grow up with a monarchy here in the U.S. to like be from the outside looking in. British-born Susanna Copeland also recognizes the royal family as a tricky subject, but continues to support them. Do we need modern-day royalty? I think what they do for the country, though, and around the world is pretty amazing, and they really do represent, I think, peace. Prince William is in Boston to present the Earthshot Prize, which he founded to recognize environmental innovation. Patrick Bench of East Boston was at City Hall Plaza yesterday. He says the prince's decision to host the awards ceremony in Boston demonstrates the city's global importance. For the prince and princess of Wales, for their first transatlantic trip since taking on that title, having that come here in the United States and having that come to Boston, I think only speaks to you know what a global leader the city of Boston is. And Prince William highlighted that theme in his brief speech. Your universities, research centers, and vibrant startup scene make you a global leader in science, innovation, and boundless ambition. The prince only spoke for a little more than two minutes, but the crowd seemed satisfied, including Navia Katuru. She's a junior at Boston University who appreciates William's leadership on environmental issues. It was pretty much what I thought <laughs> they'd say, but it was cool to hear it straight from them. And it's good because we can hold them accountable to what they say. At the end of last night's event, City Hall was awash in green light in honor of the Earthshot Prize. The award ceremony will take place tomorrow. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochavillo.
Christine McVie has died. She was part of Fleetwood Mac. She was a singer and songwriter, and she was 79. Her legacy includes Rumors, one of the best-selling albums of all time, on which Christine McVie wrote many of the hit songs. Here's NPR's Elizabeth Blair. Don't stop, Christine McVie. Over my head, Christine McVie. You can take me anytime you like. I'll be around if you think you might. Love me, baby. Everywhere, Christine McVie. Christine McVie could do everything, compose, write lyrics, sing lead and background, play keyboards. She started making music as a little girl in England. Her dad was a music teacher and violinist. Her mother was a psychic and faith healer. McVie studied classical piano and cello until she discovered Fats Domino and the blues. She was hooked. By the late 1960s, she was one of the only women in the British blues scene. Her cover of Etta James' I'd Rather Go Blind with the band Chicken Shack became a hit. I would rather go blind. Than to see you walk away from me. Love, jealousy, romance, affairs of the heart were Christine McVie's stock and trade. And there was plenty of that in Fleetwood Mac. She joined the band in 1970. She'd married its bassist, John McVie, two years earlier. Her bandmates, Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham, were also married. Both couples eventually divorced. Add to that rumors of cheating, drugs, and alcohol. <laughs> Fleetwood Mac is a carnival. McVie and Lindsay Buckingham talked to WXPN's World Cafe when they released an album together in 2017. In the nicest possible way, it, it is a carnival, and, and it's very, very... I don't know what the word is. Lindsay, can you think of the word? What, Fleetwood Mac? Yes, how would you describe... Dysfunctional. Christine McVie left Fleetwood Mac in the late 1990s. She told Rolling Stone she moved to the country, enjoyed her dogs, went for long walks, and didn't really play music. She rejoined the band 16 years later. Last June, she was asked by The Guardian what song she was most proud of. She said, Songbird. It's sort of like a little prayer for everybody. the best musician anyone could have in their band, reads a statement from Fleetwood Mac, and the best friend anyone could have in their life. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. And the songbirds are singing Let me know the Wow. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Scape. And I'm e. Martinez. Like never before We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting A Christmas Carol. 
a new adaptation highlighting Dickens's time in Lowell, now through December 24th, MRT.org. My name is Eric Deggins, and I'm TV critic for NPR. It's important to make space for arts coverage on the air because people have made space for the arts in their lives. Art allows us another way to reconsider and think about and process things that happen to us as a society. And we are processing a lot these days. Uh, I do donate to the NPR member station where I live. I'm supporting an institution that reflects a lot of the values I have about reporting the news and being connected to the local community and what's important about serving the public. I'm Eric Deggins. Give what you can and help your member station cover your community as well as it possibly can. Here's how to give. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You guys just missed Deb Becker singing (laughs) along with the bittersweet, (laughs) wonderful voice of Christine McVie. We are here with you every morning, feeling the feels with you and doing it all together every morning. And you guys recognize what we bring to you. You're showing it because you are chipping away at this goal so quickly. We only have $700 to go in the next few minutes. You are showing how much you value Morning Edition, and we are so grateful. Let's get done with this goal. Oh, now it's 600 mm-hmm. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That's right. Two minutes left before we go to the BBC. And what we're asking you to do in these two minutes is help us be on track during this year on Fund Drive. And as Rupa said, $600. Help us raise that $600 by 9 a.m. And that means we've met this hour's goal and we're one hour closer to reaching our overall goal in this year on Fund Drive. Make your tax-deductible contribution for your public radio listening today because that's where the money comes from. We are so thankful that you are here, that you're listening, that you're contributing. We really have the have the best listeners, right? <laughs> I think we really truly do. This is exciting. Uh, I'm just I'm just watching the is, numbers go down. It's really quite amazing. $400. We can do this. Come on, help us out. Help us re- raise that $400 by 9 a.m. We've got a minute left to go and remember, if you can do $12 a month right now, we will send you as our thanks a double to be your sweatshirt. Which it's, I am modeling right now. You are, and it looks terrific. Here's thank the you, number to you. call. Call. We've got a minute left to make this goal, this hour's goal. Help us do it. Come on, let's show everybody else that these morning edition listeners are going <laughs> to step up to the plate and they're going to do what needs to be done and contribute to WBUR. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Someone's typing something, so there's going to be another moment in a second here. I, Oh, yeah, just two. Two hundred dollars to okay, go. 200. Okay, but in my we what forty seconds to go. In my eyes, though, you guys, you've already done it. I am so proud of the morning edition listeners. I think how many goals have we met at this point? Oh, we just did it. Woo-hoo, you guys, woo-hoo. thank you, thank you so so much. That is really wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Rupa Shinoy here with Doug Becker. Just so grateful for you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for contributing. We're going to the BBC shortly, but thanks for recognizing how important you are in bringing independent journalism to Boston. Thanks so much for helping us make the goal. Thanks for listening. We can't do it without you. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston. Holiday catalogs and book recommendations for every reader. PorterSquareBooks.com. 
I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.